0: Welcome to the Iconic Brands Podcast, where we cover the best e-commerce brands, their story, the playbook that made them successful, and their founders. For each company, we'll discuss the history of the brand and their growth playbook, and we also occasionally do interviews with a founding member. We are here to help you navigate the changing world of e-commerce and to help you build the next Iconic Brand.
1: Nice to see you for another episode of Iconic Brands. This one is a special one, talking about a company in our own backyard. Uh, but before getting started, how was your long weekend? Did you guys have fun? You survived the, the wildfires we had around here. Uh, what did you do? Failed?
0: Yeah, so I went to a celebration of saint jean Baptiste day, which was basically the uh, the Canada Day for, for Quebec, which was a lot of fun. And then kind of like what you mentioned on Sunday, due to the wildfires, just stayed inside, red and chilled, which was quite nice. Crazy, huh? it was like so, yeah.
1: so smuggy around town.
2: Yeah, about that. So for me, I was basically just not on vacation, but in Trambulant to do an athletic competition. So basically an Olympic triathlon. It was also my, my birthday weekend. So it was basically chill on my end, no, no big partying and stuff. But I had the chance to have a clear day for my, for my competition. But then in the next morning for the Alpha Ironman, people woke up, 2,000 athletes, and they just didn't do their competition because it was too foggy. They had, you know, dust on their bikes. Uh, there was like a lot of mints actually everywhere because you know yeah because of the you know climate difference so it was basically crazy people knew that it was the right decision but unfortunately they had you know some people had traveled from the u.s just to do that
0: but it's scary as well too because i feel like even if they would have been able to do that the air quality was so bad that they probably would not have performer gotten like some sort of sickness from that
1: no for sure for sure Uh, i mean it's still bad right when you train for something and you travel and you expense and stuff so uh and Tremblanc is a nice race as well. Mm-hmm. Like uh, one of the nice uh, in-mountain kind of half uh, Ironman.
2: Yeah, so I was the lucky one, but fully in shape for, for today's episode.
1: Yeah, and you did great, man. You, show, you shared your times with me. I'm impressed, man. Uh, pretty good, pretty good, pretty good.
2: Yeah, it's hard to see those uh, efforts pay out. Nice. All
1: right, so let's get going. Talking about this montreal based company called Essence. Uh, so... Anyone following fashion at this stage might have heard about uh, Essence. Uh, it's a pretty, you know, when it comes to high-end fashion and luxury streetwear, it's pretty top of mind. I mean, you have Essence, you have Farfetch, kind of net a when it comes to, like, big, huge marketplaces, but they are kind of up there. And so we're going to be diving into this company's long history, uh, you know, talking about the background of their founders, which is a family of three brothers. Um, We're going to talk about our take on their strategy, you know, both past and future, the challenges they face, that they're facing. So diving into the deep stuff as we usually do. Uh, But before getting started, perhaps giving, you know, a quick introduction on uh, Essence by the numbers, just so people can realize the scale of it as a company. Um, Essence is a... uh, fashion item marketplace when i say fashion I- items it's mostly apparel but they've launched over the last few years under a uh, section on their website called everything else a bunch of stuff uh including you know home goods uh always designer always i hand but they're they've kind of expanded the number of skus uh, that they host they have a 1600 brands listed on the site and that goes from Up and coming brands, which, you know, backing those great brands early on has been kind of part of their DNA early on. So they're not scared of including in the marketplace, you know, lesser known names that they Mm -hmm. find, you know, come up with a a very unique perspective and take on fashion. And they also have, you know, very big names like Balenciaga, Gucci and and Prada kind of all being on the website. Uh, So amazing selection of items. Um, Very... Intuitive browsing experience as well. Uh, so the, the website's UI is extremely well built. Um, the company was founded in 2003. Uh, so a while back, you know, a lot before e-commerce actually was a thing. Back in 2003, people were not comfortable putting their credit cards online. It was the Wild West online. So uh, very early on, they've kind of started to work on that, which is very cool. Um yeah, when we look at the scale of the company today, uh, it's about 750 millions of annuals, uh, annualized sales. Uh, so huge. The company is valued at 5 billion Canadian, 4.1 billion US. And this valuation came from their last and sole external funding round. So the company was fully bootstrapped up until 2018, 2019, when they, led, uh, when they raised a the round led by Sequoia. Uh, we're going to dive into those details kind of a, a lot more. But that's basically it. Um, they do serve a very young community of people. Uh, so the core, the bulk of their buyers are people aged from 18 to 40 years old. This is expected to represent by 20, 2025. It's crazy, 2025. I, I say that like it's a long-term forecast, but it's actually right around the corner. Uh, but by 2025, this will represent 70% of uh, fashion buying power because uh, so this is very much you know our generation um and yeah they sell item i mean they have some accessible items in terms of pricing you know 100 bucks a little bit above that um for specific items but it can it, it can move up like really high you know yeah. tens of thousands for some items that are really really high fashion are kind of exclusive so um the average selling price on the sense i mean this is a number that only they you know really have it hasn't been disclosed but I wouldn't be surprised if the average selling price is around 300 bucks and average cart could be, you know, slightly above that, obviously. So, uh, yeah, definitely some higher ticket items, higher quality. But that's essence. sense. It's a company, a marketplace that has grown, that I kept on like adding brands, you know, more and more no brands, non-brands, adding SKUs over time. Uh, and then the last piece I would say, just kind of on the introduction of it, is they are a marketplace But they are also a content company in that they've put a lot of emphasis early on for not only having a page where people can buy stuff, but also have a destination where people can follow fashion, understand what's trendy, where things are going, discover new uh, creators. So this pulse on culture that they provide uh, is something they've invested as a company quite early on that really sets them apart uh, from some of their peers. So that's pretty much kind of the TLDR 101 around what Essence is. We are obviously all super proud of having this company in our backyard. you know, in Montreal. It's been there from the earliest days. Uh, it stayed there, even though it grew as a company with offices, you know, in London, Belgium, um, Toronto, New York. So it's it's a global company now, you know, by all means and extent but it remains kind of a, one of the provinces and cities' biggest pride when it comes to entrepreneurship, for sure. Um, yeah, lots of reasons for that. Um, we're going to dive into that as well. But uh, I personally really like uh, Essence as a company, obviously. So now perhaps we can dive into the background of the founders, which is super interesting, obviously having you know three brothers kind of behind that. So Ben, perhaps you can walk okay. us through uh, that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So as you can imagine, it's really hard to get, you know, to be the place or one of the few places where fashion enthusiasts actually go and buy their items. Even if they are from Prada, actually people prefer to shop on Essence. So how do you build that impressive mode and, you know, that scale of a business where you have all of the top brands in there and people actually go to your site first? That's, that's a crazy story. So we need to go back to the beginning and, oh, it started. So actually, as Joe said, it was founded by two Let's three brothers, uh, which are from the Attala family. So Rami, Basel, and Feras. Uh, the three brothers, they actually grew up in Syria. So basically very, very far from the fashion world and the developed economies. And they were actually not from a background of family that are in the business of you know consumer, consumer brands. Their father actually worked as a steel importer uh, based in Syria. And they spent most of their days when they were young actually just you know, doing music lessons and playing tennis. So actually not really interested in the, in the design scene at all. When they were a bit older, so their father decided to just move the family in Canada, in Montreal, just relocated the whole family uh, in order, I suppose, for them to just go do their university studies uh, there and have access to a great education. Uh, so Rami, which is currently the, the CEO of essence uh, was actually uh, the one that studied in computing engineering in McGill. Uh, McGill is basically one of the top universities uh, back in Montreal and also in Canada as well. And after that, he did his MBA in uh, the University of Chicago. Bassel, his brother, uh, who now is in the, you know, all the creative direction of the company, did his back did his did his studies in electrical electrical engineering also in at McGill in Montreal. And the third brother decided uh, Ferraz, which is now the CEO at, at the moment, decided to do a, a degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Waterloo in Toronto. COO, 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 yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Which I found very funny because it's very um, ironic in the sense that it's three engineering brothers that are into fashion, with engineers having the reputation of dressing extremely poorly. So that's
1: that's that's, uh, that's funny, yeah. Um, When you even look at LVMH, I mean, uh, Bernard Arnault wasn't from the fashion world at first, right? He he actually came from a family that was uh, in real estate, mainly. Uh, He was a financier himself, you know, more than being kind of a fashion person. Uh, So you do see that kind of trend line uh, of people from different fields kind of becoming at the reins of like fashion companies. This is a team I've observed, but it's yeah the paradox of having engineers being behind. Like, who would have thought? Exactly.
2: And they also the Tree Brothers actually did a different, you know. Different studies, so one in computer engineering, another one in mechanical, another one in electrical engineering. So maybe there's a bit of a competitive sense here, and wow. wanted to complement their skills together. I, I'm
1: pretty sure there's a Syrian dad in the back that's telling <laughs> them, "Guys, you go to school, you have great grades.
2: It's engineering or you know medicine. That's that's your only choices, yeah. guys. <laughs> the only yeah.
1: choices if you want to have food on the table tonight.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um But yeah, so while in school, you know, Rami. He had to do, you know, his, his, his thesis in order to, to finish off his studies. And he realized that there was actually a potential to start selling some clothes online. We're going to talk a bit further about that later on. But he started his journey, you know, uh, just trying to resell designer jeans. And he purchased them, you know, from local resellers, then from eBay later on, you know, on different type of sites that, that were out there. And he actually coded himself for 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 his thesis you know, a small websites so in order to resell those, those, de- those desired jeans. And With he actually,
1: HTML, all the kind yeah. of things, he did it out. Like there was no Shopify around, yeah. uh, you know, back then. Even Photoshop, you had to learn Photoshop too.
0: And that's what I found cool because it was completely not, like, he didn't have to learn those things, but you know, as an entrepreneur, he really went out of his way to do that.
1: Yeah. It was like school related anyway. So if it didn't work, like, I mean, the purpose was to explore stuff and then yeah. it, it grew into, it's funny because uh, the other podcast that we're actually doing, that is more focused on creators and creators tool. We were talking today about Runway ML, which is like the biggest text to video software uh, available today. They just raised like a $50 million round at a $500 million valuation and it started from a school project as well. So there's kind of this uh, team uh, happening over and over again with different type of businesses, but still you know, two huge successes. I keep going, yeah. Ben, sorry.
2: I think for his project, could have you know only code the website and would have, that would have been enough in order to just prove his point that there is there's is, you know an opportunity to start doing commerce on the internet because yeah. we're still you know in 2003. So it's still in the early phases of the World Wide Web, right? <laughs> uh, but so yeah, he was actually doing bunch of different stuff as well to get his company off the ground. So actually doing the customer services, there were the warehouses picking the, you know, just packing up the the different products doing the photos the retouches. So basically touching everything while, while still finishing off studies. So that, you know, is the great segue in order to, to start that you, to start seeing that he was actually trying to build a business there. And that's the beginning of his sense.
1: Another uh, kind of cool point. Um, which I think comes to the topic of just serend- serendis- uh, seren- serendipity. serendipity and and kind of um, having the, the great luck of being influenced by the right people. But uh, from what I understood from like Rami's story, uh, it's two interesting points. First of all, his first connection with fashion was actually from the tennis world uh, when he saw like André Agassi wear a very fashion forward kind of pair of shoes and And this is when he realized that he could actually, you know, go against um, the usual rules, which in tennis, you know, there is a lot like people dressing all white and all that kind of stuff. There's rules and and he kind of broke them. But also the interesting point is the person who introduced him to the Internet first was actually a tennis coach. Um, So, again, you know, the tennis world in odd ways kind of guided him towards uh, this whole kind of fashion journey and what ended up becoming obviously, yes. a sense. So um, it's, it was just interesting for me to realize kind of the century points into both fashion and tech being related to a passion for tennis that he had, you know, back then and still has, you know, to this day. Um, so that's that's a cool a cool part. But yeah, PL, do you want to dive a little bit deeper into the early days uh, of a sense, you know, how this founding team kind of came to create, you know, one of the world leaders when it comes to online fashion? Yeah, no, for sure.
0: <laughs> okay. And that's what I found really cool is that so in relating to the tennis part, he actually kind of did a little switch where in 2003, which by the way, was like two years after the dot-com boom. So once again, the internet wasn't the most popular thing at the time. And what he did is actually started selling high-end pair jeans, which were like diesel jeans. And he realized that he could actually do a very high margin based on selling those jeans online, which I found was really funny because when you think about the internet back in 2003 most of them were like lots of scams and you couldn't really know who to trust and who to buy from so the fact that he was able to successfully do that is definitely very like impressive then he actually started a his own store in 2004 and bought the essence.com domain in 2006 which another really interesting aspect for essence is that they were actually self-funded and profitable from day one which not many businesses have um, as most of them are like vC backed or something of the sort,
1: yeah, hundred percent. And I think one of the reasons why they were profitable from day one is being a clearly bootstrap company is that mm-hmm. no one was having like a salary in the first day in the first years. um, so they they had to go, you know to this whole thing the hard way. yeah
2: uh, I assume that to to build their first store, you know, a year later than they started the business, they must have got you know at least a lot of a little bit of seed money from friends and family, right?
1: They got a loan from their father,
0: yeah. Exactly. Uh, Which was really cool. And then at the same time, his two brothers joined him, uh, which I think was really, really nice because it's like the whole family affair. Right. And then once once he saw the success of those jeans, he kind of changed again to focus a lot more on high end brands. And what was cool about Essence is that instead of focusing on kind of like the snobby aspect of luxury fashion, they were focusing a lot more on showcasing like the different brands and showing the importance of the stories that those brands have to tell where what is cool because with that aspect in mind is kind of like joe mentioned at the start is that they were really rooted in the fact of showing off new and smaller brands or independent designers which is something that is kind of different
1: i think when we uh well i'm curious to have your take on these guys like Mm -hmm. this is i think more of a personal take but The the very big brands like Gucci and stuff, they joined like a lot later on, like 2016, I think is when Gucci joined. So the company was already like 13 years old. And today, obviously, Essence kind of um, mentions, right, this focus on emerging brand and they're like a springboard for and they've done that very successfully in that they were able to find brands early on, list them before they ended up becoming like huge successes, which is great for both themselves and the brand. But to me, saying that they do focus so much on on, on being a springboard for younger brands and smaller brands, I mean, obviously, at first, this is how they could start. So it's not as if, you know, in 2007 and, and just 2010, they could have had, you know, Balenciaga and, you know, Louis Vuitton, like. I mean this was the only thing they could really do back then right and and and, and, and they did it well because they picked like the the right the right uh, the right brands but yeah I, I just want to put that that caveat out there that uh you know it's great that they focus on on having younger brands and and being a springboard especially today because today they, they wouldn't have to do that but mm. in the early days I don't think it's as if they really had a choice I, that, that that's a personal take obviously uh, I don't have any kind of insider details on that but that's just an intuition I guess
0: Yeah. 100%. I I agree with that take. And I do think that's kind of like, once again, going back to to Rami kind of doing whatever is needed to, you know, to just keep your business alive. Right. Um, so yeah. And that's why I think it was, it was quite cool because just, it gives like a whole bunch of like opportunities to smaller businesses and also just like a Kind of like what Shopify did, really at the start with like much smaller brands. Obviously, not comparing essence yeah, to yeah, Shopify,
1: empowering no, you know smaller smaller um, companies. Exactly.
2: I assume at, th- at that time, you know, those entrepreneurs and independent designers didn't have you know the, the budget or just the capacity to build their own website and storefront online. Mm-hmm. So that's the main gap that Essence was fulfilling with their offering, and people want to dress and follow those designers and to look cool and be ahead of the trends and. Essence was actually just being the place to, to get all of that traffic. From it's the actually one.
1: super interesting as a take because that makes Essence way closer to Shopify. You know, Essence was your storefront on the world. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's quite an interesting take, Ben. Uh, I think it's true. I think it's it's well said. Um, yeah, and, and kind of adding to, to what you've been saying, uh, PL and kind of continuing in that storyline as a company. Uh, but yeah, basically Essence grew, you know, double digit year over year, profitable, Every single year since like 2003, as you've said, uh, and then a few cool things that they've done. So in 2010, they were uh, one of the first online e-commerce companies to launch, you know, a mobile app, uh, which 2010 is quite early on to yeah. be launching an app. Uh, when was the iPhone? 2006, 27. 2007. Um, yeah. So so you know they were quite early on. The App Store was not the App Store that we know today. So they've always been like super. Tech forward, uh, building a lot of proprietary tech uh, internally, making sure they are extremely data driven in everything they do, which you might have realized by the promotions and the <laughs> discounts on their sites from time to time, which are obviously super algo uh, driven. Um, they are uh, a tech company operating in the fashion sector, you yeah. know, more than a fashion company having some tech, um, and that's you know observable from many things that they've done kind of over the years. Um, and yeah, perhaps another kind of very notable element of their journey uh was the the round that they raised you know that five hundred million dollar round that they raised from Sequoia Capital, which we've already talked about on this show uh It seems like you know the name of Sequoia is a recurring team whenever you talk about successful companies, but um <clears throat> they raised that round the first external founding round i wanna dive kind of two minutes into what I find. Interesting about this kind of staying non venture funded for so long and and kind of the pros and cons of that obviously context for the audience, but we are all of us kind of working at the same startup right and this is a startup that has done the entire opposite. We actually raised quite a lot of money before even having an m v p right We did it like on a presentation obviously uh the financial context to raise money in twenty uh, in 2003 uh, versus the one in which we raised, which was uh, in 2022, um, was very different, right? Obviously uh, on the back of the bubble, as you've said, uh, venture market being a lot less developed than it is now and and we are kind of in different situations. But it's, it's obviously interesting for me to kind of hear about the stories of successful founders like that and, and trying to understand, you know, the difference in how they approach things, how they thought and, and the learnings we can kind of take from that. I wonder, I do think um, that going this way and not raising any outside capital had to do, somewhat had to do with culture and and, and the way they were actually brought up. So they are immigrants, as we've said. Uh, They had a dad entrepreneur, right? You know, importer of steel, uh, obviously not close to the venture industry at all, but very close to the entrepreneurship and hard work. Uh, and need to operate intelligently to be profitable type of mindset. So when I look at Essence and I look at tons of other e-commerce companies and huge e-commerce companies, it seems to me that they have a discipline in in how they approach capital uh, that not a lot of the venture-funded companies have as a culture type. Um, And... I think that's a rare thing for companies at this scale. Uh, So I would like to say that I do think the way they were brought up played a role in them not taking any outside funding for so long and that this discipline that they had to take while it it was a cost, you know, obviously in scaling that company in the first few years really seemed to have paid off great dividend because when they raised that round from Sequoia, I mean, the valuation was huge but i'm not sure if sequoia is really used to seeing profitable company in that space at this stage uh, with you know being profitable for more than 10 years in a row i think there's something very unique in a sense when you look at this at, at the universe of 5 billion dollar companies especially in the e-commerce space to be profitable like that for so long i think it's it's really unique to them and i think that's a a clear consequence of them being bootstrapped for so long and having to make trade-offs having to not invest crazily in new initiative without having proved that initiative just that sense of testing stuff before investing in them all these kind of things that make you be capital efficient like they've really lived through that and i think they are most potentially are, are, are you know among the best founders in the world to manage capital intelligently not burn money uselessly while still growing meaning they've taken the right bets um so yeah i think there's something to kind of discuss around
2: I think topic. I think there's a second leg to it, which is their family coming from Syria. Maybe they don't have access to those channels of external capital. So I think also d- during that context of you know early 2000s, where you know the VC market, especially in Montreal, is basically not really you know existing. front and center. Yeah. Or ex- it was existing, right? <laughs> yeah. But it was not fully developed as it is you know as of right now. So much harder for a company, especially in that early stage phase, to from university and no back, you know, no prior expertise as of the two brothers to actually just start with that and get going. Yeah, yeah. Not,
0: uh, go, ahead, go ahead, Bill. And I was gonna say, like, not only that, but the terms from a VC back then were a lot less friendly than they are today. That, like, I heard like stories that you had to like pay back money. And that's why, like certain founders had to like sell their homes back in the days and stuff like that.
1: So, yeah, I, I get that. My point is, why did 2010 a sense? Didn't raise any capital. Well, why did 2015, in a sense, didn't raise any
0: external so capital? So they
2: were profitable and for sure had made enough profits and wanted to reinvest in the company that they didn't really feel the need, you know, to to get that external funding. And if you don't need to dilute yourself, why do why to, why do it, right? If if you need to and you start by getting external funding, then you're you know stuck in a trap that you need to continue you know, raising in order to grow faster and faster to meet those expectations, but they didn't have to. So I think that's the main reason why they did not Yeah,
1: I agree. But that's the that's the point where I'm trying to get is um, once you're there uh, and you make that decision that uh, you uh, don't want to raise and you see competitors, you know, raising and then they are equipped to capture market share, you know, faster than you. And then you see opportunities to invest that capital. I mean, obviously you were profitable, But if there's a way for you to get a capital injection to accelerate that growth and you actually think that you are capable of allocating that capital at a bigger return than it costs you, a lot of people are making that decision to take that external capital. Yeah. And a lot of people are making that decision of taking that external capital to accelerate that growth, especially in light of competition, market share, you know, positioning. Obviously, in e-commerce, you want to be one of the three destinations where people go at least, right? So there's like... Big consideration around big arguments for you know taking outside capital. I
2: think it's a preference of whether you want to grow faster or you, you just want to have more control, and they decided to, to choose the latter. I think there's other examples more in the enterprise software kind of space where everybody is actually VC funded, but there's an, also another Canadian, you know, Canadian unicorn which is called G, JSOF that actually did the same. They were bootstrapped all the, fir- all the, the first 10 and more years and they decided to take you know, external capital as of lately, just in order to seize that growth whenever they, they saw that big inflection point or that big pivot that they needed to do. And actually both model worked. so.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Both model work. And interestingly, as we kind of dive into that Sequoia Capital kind of investment, the rational from a tactical standpoint is great. Uh, so it wasn't Sequoia. It was Sequoia China uh, that actually made the investment, which interestingly is not part of Sequoia anymore. They kind of split the partnership. Yeah. Um But yeah, so Sequoia China came in, the Chinese market and the Asian market being such a huge market for fashion, one in which Essence uh, either wasn't really present or, you know, not at the scale at which it was, you know, in North America, at least that's for sure. Um, They've made that move. I think the partner who joined their board uh, was actually the founder of Vogue China. Yeah, it was her. It was Angelica Cheng. Which uh, might
2: be the reason why they also decided to get external funding, which is if you want to expand in China, maybe that's one of the right person to have around your, yeah, around, right. your
1: yeah. back, right? yeah. around your back, right? Around your acceptable.
0: Yeah, especially plus all the contacts that she has there could be super helpful.
1: Open question for you: Do you think the essence founders think about essence to you know in today or five years ago? Do you think they go bootstrap for so long? Do you think it was really like? part of how they thought or or this was you know driven by context. I do think it was part of their personality more than context. Like it was like a culture vision thing, wanted to have like control, you know, being a family-owned thing that they've scaled to so big. yeah it does seem to me like it was more driven by how they think about things than, than about like lack of access or anything like that. But I guess it's hard to answer, even themselves couldn't tell, right? Because those are different contexts, but yeah.
2: After the few first years where they were successful, I think VCs started knocking at their doors, exactly. and they yeah, just decided. Sure. It was a decision that they made, you know, maybe not anonymously, but they did it anyway, and they did it for still 10 years, 10 years more. So I think I think it's a decision. Yeah, they it's took. a
1: pretty strong, uh, pretty strong fund. And yeah, when they took money, it was, you know, a great terms from a great fund, so... But they had challenges as well. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't all roles and goals, although it was pretty much great for a very long portion of the time. But yeah, do you want to dive into some of the challenges they face as a company and, and walk us through a few of those and we can kind of chime uh, on some interesting ones.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the first ones and the most like important ones, that I think, is that now those bigger names are starting to pull back from Essence. Where, for example, like, the product page on essence in the U S is currently down because those big brands are now going directly on their website to like sell that stuff like that. They don't have to give a cut to the big name to essence where I think that's a challenge, but I'd love to hear both of your opinions because at the same time, it does remove those bigger brands that, because they did lots of like cross mixing with those bigger brands to give more vision to smaller brands. But, yeah, I would love to hear your take on, like, how do y'all see this going for, for them?
1: So first off, I'd like to say that sense take, I don't have, like, the numbers. From what I've heard, it's huge. I've mm. heard numbers as up as, like, 50% as a think.
2: I would be surprised. I, I, I would say, for me, I think the ballpark of marketplaces is usually around 5 to 15%. In I've, terms heard, of I've take take heard
1: 50. Rate. I don't know if that's the number, but I've heard it's Of profits, maybe. Of profits? No, no, of sale. Ticket Ticket price. Seems that seems that seems very crazy high, yeah. to me. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it mean, would be, I would be too, it seems extraordinary. That. I I might need to like dive deeper, but I've heard it's very high. Let's okay, mm-hmm. let's start from the basis that it's very high. Now, why would you list on essence? Obviously you want to list on essence to do sales, but you also want to do it for people to be aware of your brand and discover who you are. Let's not forget that Essence customer base is like 18 to 40 years old. I'm not sure that Prada's buyer base is 18 to 40 years old. Like brands need to type into that audience, yeah. uh, whether they they like it or not, like they want to be seen by this audience. This doesn't mean that you need to have your entire inventory right there, right? You, you can just have a few items that you use as lust leader to kind of attract traffic and create aware, awareness around, around what you do. Um, so when it comes to like brand, big brands pulling out, I mean, they can obviously. It's always their decision. I think it's a it's a mat that you need to run. Um,
0: but that's where I found it interesting as well, because it's kind of like a like you said, like it's kind of a marketing play for exposure yeah. of getting your stuff on Essence with lots yeah. of other stuff. So, yeah, I thought that was a bit um, interesting. But
2: yeah, I think that's basically the same point as you just made. Maybe they they thought about it as a you know marketing experiment, which means that Essence is so good at blending content with covers mm-hmm. that they actually did some activations on the advertising front, but also put their stuff on there in order to make sure conversions was good. And then maybe they they realized there's better channels for us and we want to keep, you know, exclusivity of all the distribution channels and boom, it's gone. And they're not on Essence. I would be surprised that if they're not on Essence anymore, they're on different marketplaces still as well, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong there.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, this whole kind of mix and matching of brands Like you don't want to dilute the brand by being on the same platform as other brands and these kind of things, Uh, like keeping the premium aspect of it. It's interesting to me because, you know, even high-end streetwear brands sometimes have, you know, ticket items that are more expensive than designer fashion. There's like a convergence in the two where, you know, you do have, streetwear brands making more and more and more expensive stuff, more premium stuff, more high quality stuff. And you do have brands like Gucci that have done, you know, their collection with Gucci ghost kind of going into that street kind of culture. And if there's anything, I see more convergence than divergence and it doesn't strike me as being dilutive in any way obviously perhaps because I come more from like the streetwear culture than I am from the designer fashion kind of culture, but I don't see the brand dilution coming from being listed on that marketplace, perhaps as much as they do. And if that brand's dilution is something that they do really see, I think it needs to be weighted against the trade-off of tapping into a younger audience. Uh, and and this is the math they need to do. I mean, if for them, the math is... I want to have the most premium vision, even if it means selling to 50-year-old people. Well, you know, there's uh, a limited LTV to those people. There's
2: there's another great example of, you know, a potential avenue where people would say, oh, it's for sure, you know, an avenue of brand delusion. You you see, you know, different brands such as Gucci, they started to release, you know, low-ticket items. So you think about the Gucci belt, that's where Gucci got most of their new customers and basically was... Very different from the, the you know, typical type of products that they offer, which are in the hundreds of dollars. And this, this items was actually based for the main, like distant to the mainstream. And you you could see this move as being, you know, the typical way to not approach your brand and, you know, keep it in the I N. But it was basically the opposite results.
0: Where I thought of that, like that strategy specifically is interesting because it really acts as a hook as you, wear the, you start with the Gucci belt but then a few years later you want to buy like the Gucci shirt like that or like the Gucci pants like that you can get like a matching Gucci outfit as that's what like lots of people do so yeah just thought that was like an interesting strategy
1: look at the end of the day I think it's always a question of math. like mm-hmm. you can always you know we can talk like whether it's a good strategy or not the answer is different depending brand depending on how low markets you go how high markets you go I just think it's a question of math. like do you make more money at the end of the day over the next 50 years by doing that To me, it's hard to justify a strategy where you move away from a marketplace that gives you visibility to a uh, a customer segment in terms of age that's going to represent 70% of like the buying power for fashion items. So it's hard for me to see the math logic behind it. Um, There's lots of assumption in doing like a 50 year forecast, obviously, but I just directionally, it's hard to wrap my hand around like that,
2: that Prada strategy of fucking away, yeah, yeah, but I, I, I can do the opposite point, which is that basically essence diverted away from you know only a few base like base basic categories around apparel and fashion and high end fashion, and they started to go into new categories and expand in, in China, expand in and home decoration and different type of accessories. So basically, maybe there's a point and there's an argument to, to do around dilution and where why Prada decided to to move out, right?
1: Yeah, but is that dilution enough to justify not tapping into that customer segment? I guess that's the that's the mad question, that right? That's the mad question, which mm-hmm. I, I think directionally it's hard to wrap my, ran, my head around the latter part being kind of the true one. But time time will tell for sure. But yeah, good point, Pail. Definitely a challenge that some brands will ask themselves. And Prada is not, you know, is not an unknown brand. It's a pretty big player uh, in the fashion high-end luxury, you know designer fashion space. So that's that's a good one challenge. I'm sure though they've been dealing with for quite some time.
0: Yeah, now. and that's where I kind of also wanted to bring in like another challenge that they've been having where it's like also the growing number of competitors where lots of them are like Mr. Porter, Matches and Huckbury. And with all of these, this is what I wanted to bring is kind of like the aspect of customer loyalty online due to the fact that when you type in a specific item on Google, you'll see all the, the ones that are the cheapest. And that's where I think there's going to be more of, because online, like honestly, you're just going to pick the one that's cheapest, right? Yeah. Uh, unless they continue, there's like a specific you like buying from a specific website due to the like I don't know maybe like culture that you yeah, create or something of the Exclusive sort. items, exactly. Uh, like maybe there's like a fa- special delivery that they'll be doing in the future, something of the sort. So,
1: so when it comes to like fashion and just e-commerce and and loyalty i mean it's 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 way easier to go from one web page to the next than to move physically from one store to the other the world is at your fingertips and and the reasons that attracted you know rami back then to create this website you know being global from day one being able to easily sell items and and all these kind of things uh, are the reason why others kind of emerged to do their things as well um I do think scale helps uh, a lot uh, when you can outbid others on keywords and, and just ads and, and, and just like uh search engine marketing mm-hmm. uh, and essence is well ranked on yeah. all searches. Uh, when you have a long history as well uh, of having a big inventory, you know, it's, it's that loyalty to purchase one item Uh, goes in, goes in many ways. Like if every time I go on a sense, I find something that I like this builds loyalty because with my limited time, when I want to search for something I like, if I go on another side that doesn't have any interesting listing, then, you know, I won't go back. Right. So there's like how, many of my past interaction with that website has have led to a haha moment of just like me being satisfied with what I've found. And to get to that point, you need inventory and inventory comes with scale, with brand power, with brand history. And so they do have that. They have the best brands. They do have all these things. So, um, there's like competition. I think inventory helps. Exclusive inventory helps even more capacity to bid Uh, on being on top of those kind of searches come with financial capabilities that comes with scale, that comes with financial power. Um, So all of this help. This being said, you know, bidding on these keywords increases CAC for the entire industry. So you need to remain profitable. Uh, And then how do you, how are you profitable? Well, you have the best internal models to make sure you make the best recommendations when people come to sell, you know, the highest margin items and you know you you rotate your inventory a lot um all these kind of things so i think having great data model and history as a company makes you better place to convert that cac into an ltv that makes sense you know tied to it and just for the audience repeating cac is customer acquisition cost so how much are you paying as a company to get a customer and LTV is lifetime value of that customer so how much money you're going to make from it could be from one purchase or how many purchases that customer is going to make over its kind of lifetime my answer to you is yes loyalty is a problem but i do think scale better models coming from time and inventory are two things
0: that help a lot where yes yeah, go ahead
2: yeah i think the main point that you mentioned that i i want to just go on more specifically is the fact that if they want to solve that loyalty you know challenge as well as the margin challenge they need to offer something that the others can't. And it's not, you know, just marketing tactics and getting highest ranked or having the better logistics. I think it's having exclusive products and that's the key and that's what they're doing. And that's where they can have the, ba- the better margins and create those big deals with with brands to create extra value for, for the customers. Mm-hmm.
1: I think also like uh, content strategy is very important uh, because people can have other listing of apparel but if you have a really unique content uh, and that pulse on culture that we shared, uh, which they do and they really put content forward. I mean, the website doesn't greet you with like items to buy. It greets you with cool stuff happening in fashion and what's the latest thing kind of being out there. I think that's the main difference. Uh, and that's how you build loyalty. Uh, it's not true product. It's true shared voice and shared perspective and opinions. Um, it's this might seem abstract but i do think content strategy content marketing done well for a very long time does create a moat
0: yeah definitely and i think the fact that you both brought this up i think it's really interesting because not only does essence also have a really great like sourcing uh, aspect or they source like all the best creators which kind of like drove their their success but something that's also very interesting is that due to those models some of their competitors what have Started doing according to an article from Blackbird Spyplane, which is a Substack. They actually started asking designers to make specific items based on what those models are um, are forecasting to be popular for the upcoming season. So that's what will be interesting to see: is what strategy mm. kind of pays off, right?
1: Yeah, that's that's the Shane kind of playbook yeah. at scale. Sheen I mean, Shane, yeah. it's uh, Shane. Sheen, it's real time, uh, real time product building based on data It's taking like essence. If essence has been data driven, I mean, Sheen is taking this to a, dare I say, on human level where <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's a very intense.
2: Yeah, I think it's one thing to have the data to do it. I think it's another thing to have the capa- the manufacturing capabilities, capabilities to in order to execute it. it fast and ship it globally. I think
1: they, they I read somewhere, again, I'm, I'm, today I'm coming with like crazy numbers that I heard somewhere. <laughs> uh, they're making like 2,000 news queues per day. Unchained or
2: That's Yeah, that's crazy. I, I think that's actually a true number.
1: 2,000 news queues per day
2: it's crazy to me that this model is actually so popular in the world that all the new customers are gaining in importance as as we go through you know the the 2030s Uh, are actually against fast fashion this is this is fast fashion
1: at super giga duper scale uh I, i mean it's crazy it's
2: a total opposite you know of what i and fashion stands about of you know buying a few items but that the ones that you yeah, really like. the highest valued software. private
1: company in the world. Okay, let's move to strategy and playbook. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but we've already started to talk yeah. about that. But about. I
2: think the, the one thing I would mention as well is a question that I have for you guys is since laid off, you know, more than 100 employees, you know, just a few months ago, I was wondering, do you think it's just the e-commerce market selling down and just taking that breeder from that big growth spike that they had during the pandemic? Do you think it's because of the rising competition or... It's just a matter that they, since they got the funding, they tried to just hire too much people and they need to scale down and be more profitable.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a, obviously a little bit of everything, but for sure they hired a lot uh, post that funding round. I mean, hiring was one of the main kind of purpose of that round. Uh, they hired a lot. Um, the macro context, we, we must remember, has been very difficult over the last kind of two years. There's... There's a bunch of implication there, obviously high inflation price, meaning shipping items and, and just cost of goods sold, all of that is more expensive, right? So this is cash outflows, this, this impact kind of unit economics sourcing, raw material means that uh, you know even uh, manufacturers of those products are making you know thinner margin unless they rise their price and if they rise their price, then it means lower sales and you know less sales on platforms like I said. so there's kind of a macro context that's hard to live with especially when you deal with physical product in a high kind of inflationary, you know, environment, which is really what we've kind of experienced over the last few years. So that's number one, tough macro, coming back of a funding round where they raised a lot. I do think um, when all companies, because tons of tech companies and, and a lot of companies made, you know, mass layoff like that, when others do it, it kind of gives you the right to do one. And it's always good to cut some fat uh, in the business, you know, after a while, if you can reduce your, I mean, I'm I'm saying that from things I've heard from like tons of other podcasts and and other funders, but when you can scale down, you know, 10, 15% of your company uh, and others are doing it, uh, you kind of feel it gives you kind of that macro right to perhaps let go some people you wanted to let go for a while. I'm not saying this is what they've done, but I'm saying but this a, is definitely something a 7% that
2: cut is basically what that means, right? Yeah, it's not same. It's not a big, you know, organi- organizational, you know, yeah, restructuring. Yeah, that's, that's what right? I think.
1: Yeah, you know, you cut 7%, I mean, not, you know, it's easy to identify at least 10% of a company is not performing, you know, yeah. at, at standard.
0: And plus with uh, the use of data, we're sure that they probably looked at that as well.
2: Yeah, like ChatGPT. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so let's move into playbook. Yeah. So, Payal, do you want to kick it off?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Payal is kicking off every new section of that podcast. Let's go ahead, Pale.
0: Awesome. Yeah, well, first off, I just kind of alluded to, but I think one of the biggest strategies that helped Essence is really the focus on data. As being able to like, use that data to understand kind of like customer behavior but also your preferences is something that I found was definitely very interesting.
1: Yeah, like three engineers behind that company. I mean, if the, the only way you get three engineers to be behind a big fashion empire is if the data is telling how to dress. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, no, but for sure, like data has been a huge factor for them from very early on. Um I mean, interestingly, let's let's even go now, I'll check like LinkedIn. If someone can check LinkedIn, uh, go on Essence and check up like the segmentation of their team. Like how many people are working in tech uh, in that company? It's easy to do. Uh, you just click on the name. Uh, yeah. Let me know if you don't know how to do it. I'll do it after. Yeah, I got uh, it. You got it. Okay, perfect. I, I'm sure it's like more than 50% of that company that's kind of tech related. Anyhow, data, very strong point and and, and big focus for them in everything that they do, definitely part of the playbook. Now, another key thing to me has been, um, I want to say exclusive items listed on their site, but it goes a little bit broader than that in that they do have access to, you know, big celebrities as well, like exclusive access. I would like to say brand, yeah, brand power from Essence is where I would like to go. Like in the customer spirit, at least to me, Essence seems like a place where I'll find very nice thing and then maybe I'll find one or two things in my budget. But if I do, those are going to be very nice items. Uh, I do see that destination as a highly curated place. I also know that the shopping experience whenever I go is going to be intuitive. I'm not scared about being like blastered with content I don't care about. Like it, I know it's going to be seamless as like a search experience. So they do have that brand power with me, the buyer. Now with brands themselves, Essence clearly resonates as, the place where you need to advertise your product if you want to tap into a younger younger audience and and get known and and respected by kind of that audience, um, so that that's a great kind of place to be. And obviously, because everyone is trying to go younger, both designer fashion and in the streetwear kind of culture, it's the other is the other argument. It's like if you're a streetwear brand and you go on essence, then you're a premium streetwear brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they do have this very unique positioning where uh they attract the good demographic and they have the um, brand partner universe uh that's built in a way that gives them you know access to both under and and over in terms of price point uh so the brand brand power to me at a sense is definitely huge uh beyond the data do you get do you got the data or or we got the data we got the data
0: so out of their employees, which are 1,800. So and the data is not fully on LinkedIn, but majoritarily they're on. I'll just give the top five in order operations, art and designs, I media mean. and communication. So those are the top three. But then number four is engineering, and number five is information technology, where the numbers for the latter two are also quite close, meaning that there's still a very large portion of the company that is focused on that.
1: If you add like the last two, where does it
2: But fit? I'm not surprised by those numbers actually, because they- Tons of
1: operations, huh?
2: Tons of the operations. Yeah. First, to have the best logistics when it comes to the rising competition. You you have no choice to do that because people don't just want to, buy, to find the lower price. They want to have the best customer experience. That's why everybody go to Amazon when they buy normal products. Yeah. That's just a no-brainer when it comes to e-commerce now. And secondly, why do they need so much designers? Because- now, big part of their of their mode and their model is actually those exclusive products mm-hmm. and the fact that they can manage their brand mix with data so beautifully that you see the model they have you know a Gucci shirt but then some random designer pants and some classic you know Gucci 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 shoes. So you're the, the mix of brands and the portfolio is so beautifully designed that you just want to buy more.
1: Yeah, it's true. It's very true. It's very true, and it makes makes tons of sense.
0: And in terms of numbers they are at around 329, which would actually put them for engineering and information technology, which would actually put them as the number two right after operation. So even more than arts and design.
2: Ben playbook. So I think for me, we talked, we talked about, you know, the brand mix. Uh, we talked about the data and the personalization that they, you know, were able to do with, you know, that UX. The third really key differentiator when it comes to their playbook is how well they executed their market expansion. So mm-hmm. they decided to go into streetwear where streetwear was still, you know, at, at its beginnings. They decided to go in China when China was becoming the you know the biggest market nice for point, ben. Very uh, nice the point. biggest market when it comes to you know IN luxury. They basically just followed the trend at the they, right time. They launched
1: the mobile app in 2010. Yeah. They went online very early on. They they understand very clearly now that having a store today is all about having an immersive experiential experience. It's not having like a huge brick and mortar footprint. Um, I think they're very good to understand what the next trend is and be early on on that trend.
2: And what do you think about the physical store that they, they decided to build, you know, a few years after they started the, their journey? Was it a good decision? Is it like one of the main differentiator that made things
1: successful? I'm I'm not even sure if the first store was actually the store they have now, like in Old Port. Uh, Maybe, maybe not. I'm not even sure. But if your question is more around the store they do have now, uh, I mean, it's an amazing store. It's built for tons of things. Like uh, it's a store, but it's super modular. So you can have like events and stuff like that. This is really the essence of what brick and mortar should be. And uh, to me, it's a great, it's a great store.
0: And just to add to that, like kind of what Joe was focusing on is that they actually focus so much on immersive experiences where at one point they even had like a cafe and a bar inside there. Um, They also had launches. So when Justin Bieber did his Drew launch, uh, they actually had an immersive experience launch inside their store for a few days uh, when Justin Bieber was here on concert. So I think kind of like you said, that focus on like more of the experiences than just a store is also quite interesting.
2: But at the same time, you know, when you don't have access to a Prada store, you don't have access to a Gucci store in your local city, you want to try those, you know, higher ticket items and you want to see if they're fit, it fits if you don't want to return them. So basically there's there's a, a gap in that market for a player to have to have that retail location. Yeah, you do have
1: OGLV and other kind of f- yeah. more physical retailers for these brands. Another important point uh, in Playbook is just I think they are great founders. Like amazing founders um, bootstrapping this company to where they've bootstrapped it, being able to become so relevant in the fashion space while building, you know, elegant technology, technology uh, successfully, you know, being a great fashion and a great kind of technology company. Um, you know, keeping a... I mean that's a personal take but just the fact that they remained you know Montreal born company those are very also humble uh founders um I think it's a rare thing to have people fo- fo- you know capable of growing in such a competitive space profitably um without while remaining humble um it's just it's just very rare uh, and and I think they do like uh, represent that in in a great way. So it's a it's kind of a pride to have them as Montreal founders for sure. Montreal kind of huge founders, but I do think it was a huge part of their success as a company. Um, I think this whole story of having been bootstrapped, the whole part of you know them being the one like learning Photoshop and packing boxes, it's really founders that have like gone from the first box of the company all the way until raising at like you know five billion and 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 now having the platform that they do. Um you know would I invest in a company like Essence today if it wasn't led by the founders of essence? Maybe maybe not but a big part of the drivers of me, you know, if this was like a publicly traded uh, company investing in them would be like the founding team. Actually, if this ca- tomorrow was a publicly traded company, I would invest into it. And the days the founder go, I would really request kind of my thesis. Uh, I think this is an extremely well-run business. Uh, so that's definitely part of the playbook to me.
0: And one last point that I actually just wanted to, to add to the data piece. I know we've already moved on, but I thought it was really, really interesting is that with Essence, they can actually one of the reasons why they can kind of like go into all those different markets and also focus while well, focus on data is due to the fact that they can actually succeed and making a profit with only 20% sell through, meaning that they only have to sell 20% at full price and then the rest of the 80% can be on sale, which is why there's so many on sale items for Essence compared to a traditional retail store where those stores have to sell like around 60%. At full price, I so think
2: it goes back to scale, right? It goes back 100%. to the point that we made before: that if you have scale and you have the volume of visitors on your site every month, you can make those tactics. And yeah, exactly. I mean, have advantage.
1: What makes you give that specific discount is not you, is not me; it's the model. Mm-hmm. And The
2: model moves best, right? If it's well built. Yeah, right. I just thought that was a
0: cool stat. So. It's, a, it's a crazy yeah, stat. Yeah. <laughs> it's a crazy stat.
2: So, Joe, if you had to resume Essence journey and the takeaways from from their their entrepreneurial endeavors. What would it be?
1: Yeah, amazing founding team uh, that had to learn how to build a business before building a high-growth tech company. And by building a business, I mean generating profits, generating cash flows. Uh, I think a very special founder CEO um, that was able to build a company in both fashion and tech, uh, create a family business of this magnitude uh, while avoiding any bad press for so long. Uh, so I think a, a crazy growth story coming from a very strong like funding team, uh, Montreal success story for sure. I think around many teams, this was a story about digitalization of fashion. It was a story about the merging of designer fashion and streetwear culture in a very interesting way. A merging of culture and fashion in, you know, a big team for us being creators becoming brands themselves, launching brands themselves. Uh, you've talked about the Justin Bieber, you know, kind of activation in a sense. I think they've been at the center of a lot of convergences. Um uh, e-commerce, high hand, and streetwear, culture and fashion, e-com uh and and mobile commerce. Um I think they've remained the a force to be reckoned with today. Uh, I'm extremely optimistic on their future, despite the challenges we've talked about with Prada. I think at the end of the day, they own the most valuable thing ever in fashion, which is the attention of the 18 to 40 year old crowd. And I think nothing is more valuable than than this attention. And I think that there's... Perhaps two, three companies in the world beyond social media companies that own as much of that intention as Essence does, and I think that's an extremely uh, invaluable thing to have
0: very well concluded.
2: I wait to wrap it up, so have a nice rest of the day, guys. you too.
0: Take right. care thanks Ciao. so much. Bye.